High Church, it's great to be with you this morning. I don't know about you, but we've been using lockdown just to try and uh, sort of do some jobs around the house that we've uh, not been doing at other times. And one of the things that we've been doing, well, it's not me that's been doing it, it's my daughter, Abby. Um, she's been scanning in some of our old photographs, and they go back donkey's ages. And I'm sure you've got some lying around your house as well. And some of them go right back to the time when I was... Uh, well, a lot younger than I am now, probably about 40 years ago, when I was uh, going to youth camp with our church up in the north of Scotland. And we used to go to a, a youth camp right down in the south of England. It took us nearly 24 hours by bus back then. There was no M25 or anything like that. And, you know, they were unbelievably precious times to, to me because so many catalytic spiritual things happened to me in the, when I was at camp. And uh, I visited there a few years ago, uh, lotly, and, and I, as I drove into the camp, I just burst out in tears because there was so many great things. In fact, I loved it so much. Even when I was too old to go there, I, uh, I volunteered to go and work as staff. And one of the things, or some of the things we did there was uh, washing the dishes, but also we were... Um, we were uh, had to clean the loos. Can you imagine cleaning the loos after about 100 uh, kids have used them? Not a very nice thing, but I was willing to do them sort of things just so that I could be part of seeing people's lives change, being part of incredible times of worship and the services that we had. I loved going to camp so much. And as a staff member, uh, we used to do activities for the kids. And one of the activities was called Hunt the Shirker. And that was an afternoon when all the staff would uh, get uh, dressed up, put on disguises, go into the local town called Hayward's Heath, and we would spread ourselves around the high street. Some people worked in shops, did different things, and then the kids were brought in by bus and all dropped off to go and find this. I, I can hear my wife shouting safeguarding to me, uh, but it wasn't very, I don't know if it was even a thing back then. But there we were, and here was Heath, all the kids were running up and down, and I got dressed up as an old man. Uh, I, I mean, I'm an old man now, but I got dressed up with a mask and put it on, uh, and uh, sat on a bench, all hunched over with old clothes, and I was uh, there, and of course all the kids could know it wasn't because I've got this plastic mask on. Uh, but as I was sitting there, I turned around, and the next thing that happened, I saw this fist coming to my face, and not, right on my nose, knocked me down, knocked me onto the ground, completely out sparkle. And I understand that what happened was an eyewitness uh, saw this whole thing happened, called a policeman, the policeman ran over, so I jumped on this guy, got him on the floor, handcuffed him, uh, and everything like that. But long story short, what happened was that the eyewitness didn't leave his name or his number or anything with the policeman. He just went off home. And, uh, and so when I went to give him a statement and everything like that, there was no eyewitness to, to the attack. Even the policeman didn't see it. So we couldn't proceed with anything. The police just had to, to finish it. The eyewitness, I understood or found out at that time, was so, so important. And uh, when I go to the Bible, we're introduced to a guy in the book of Luke, a guy called Theophilus. And he was a, a Roman governor, 
quite a well-to-do guy, and he was investigating about this person called Jesus who had lived and, and, and went through the whole thing around this time. And he'd heard incredible things about Jesus, and he wanted to find out a little bit more. He was no eyewitness to Jesus. Everything he had found out, he'd heard secondhand, he'd heard rumors, everything was going around, but he, he, he hadn't heard he didn't hear Jesus teaching, he didn't see any of the miracles, he wasn't walking around with him, he didn't spend time in a meal, and uh, he wanted to find out a little bit more. So he asked a doctor, his name was Dr. Luke, to investigate all the rumors and everything that was going on. It's a bit like a, a panorama investigation. Have you seen them on TV recently? Maybe around the vaccine and everything, all the false things are fake news that are going around about the vaccine, and they're doing expose to try and find out what the real truth is. And that that's what Dr. Luke did. He, he went around finding people to interview and find out from the eyewitnesses how it all went. And I'm not sure if Luke, Dr. Luke was a follower of Jesus when he started, uh, but I do know that he became a follower of Jesus. And he partnered the Apostle Paul and all his, uh, well, not all of them, but many of his missionary journeys. And he wrote two incredible books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, which uh, give us so much uh, understanding and so many uh, truths from people who were there um, who we interviewed. In fact, he starts his uh, book to, to Theophis in Luke 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were what eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, through the eyewitnesses he would have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he set off to, to do that, interviewing people, uh, chasing down the people who were around in Jesus' life to find out everything he could from the eyewitnesses that were there. And we're going to take some time leading up to Easter to turn to the end of uh, Luke's book and start to learn and what he found out from eyewitnesses. So join us over the next few weeks, either in person or, or here at church, and uh, and. and and, and work through with us as, as we look at the different experiences that people had at that time. So I'm going to be speaking in a few minutes about the first of those things, Jesus' meal or last meal with friends, often called the Last Supper. If you were told that this evening was going to be your last evening with your family, you weren't going to be able to be with them again and... Uh, it was going to be your last meal with them and your last chance to speak to them. Well, that's what Luke gives a, a glimpse into when he tells us about this time in Jesus' life just before he was going to be betrayed, when he had a final meal with his closest friends, his disciples. And he, Luke gives us uh, so much detail about this whole event um, he talks about how the room was found, how it was prepared. It talks about the meal, the conversations. And uh, 
we find them seated around the table. In fact, they weren't seated around the table. They were probably lying down next to each other on cushions because the tables back then were low rather than the high things that we have nowadays. But as they were gathered around that dinner table, we discover so much about what Jesus said to them. A traitor was unmasked, a sacrament was introduced, a death was foretold, leadership is defined, his mission is described for the church, Holy Spirit is promised, eternity is confirmed, and even a betrayer amongst their number is prophesied about. So, so much happened. Now, I haven't got time to go into all the things that are said, but I would really like to challenge you to, to go to Luke 22 and also to John, the disciple that Jesus loved so much. Go to his account. He actually gives a lot of time to it from John chapter 13 right the way through to chapter 17 to discover what the important things were that God, Jesus, had to say to his disciples before he was going to go to the cross. But I just want to spend... A little bit of time looking at two things that I would take from that last meal that he had with his disciples. The first thing I want to talk about is that Jesus redefined significance in his kingdom. It was the significance is about how much we serve, not how great we are. It wasn't about how great or what position or power the people had. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is defined by how we serve other people. It's interesting to, to read in Luke 22. We find that the disciples are having an argument. It says in Luke 22, verse 24, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the goat. No, it doesn't say goat greatest of all time it just says the greatest who is going to be the greatest these guys sat around with Jesus and they're having a discussion about who was going to be the greatest and he said to them the kings of the Gentiles they exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors so the people that rule get the benefit in this relationship not the people underneath but I don't want to be this to be like with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. What's the first word that pops into your mouth when you hear the word leader? Jesus is, I don't know what you think, but Jesus is saying here that when you think of the word leader in his church, you automatically think, one who serves. Leader, one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Well, in the world, that's what we would say. We would say the people at the table being served are the important ones or the greatest ones. He says, but in my kingdom, but I, I am among you as one who serves. I just love that thought that Jesus gives us and how, how the fact that this relationship in the church, in the world, it's like the king rules and the people underneath and the, the relationship actually benefits the people who are in leadership. 
But Jesus is turning this whole thing upside down, that the leaders are there to support and help and serve the people and use their influence for the greatness and the goodness of the people in the, that they are serving. I, I, I've been listening to a, a podcast recently uh, by, done by a footballer called Ian Wright, and it's called Everyday People or Everyday Heroes. And he's telling stories of people who've, just ordinary people who, through different things, have done incredible lives. And one of the stories that I love that he tells was about a lady from Uganda who was living here in the UK now, and she got caught up in the uh, Grenfell fire. She escaped it, and uh, one of the things that she wanted to do, out coming out of that, was that she want, she set up a community kitchen to uh, give food and distribute food to people in need, or people that had lost everything from the fire, and she set this community kitchen up. She had lots of uh, relatives and friends that helped her, and she made food, rice, and all the different things. And, and uh, one day she got told that a VIP party were going to come and meet her. And uh, so she was, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do, do a meal. And they said, well, you need to cook for 15 people. And uh, she said, well, I'm going to cook for 50 because I don't want to, to, want to run out. So she was at it. And, and so these, this VIP party turned up and uh, this lady was the most important lady in the VIP team and she handed her a bag of rice because everybody cooked in her kitchen. It doesn't matter if you were a VIP. So she hands this VIP a bag of rice. And so she's washing the rice at the ki kitchen sink and everything and getting it ready to prepare. And uh, the VIP turned around and spoke to uh, the, the lady who, who was there cooking. She said, have you ever thought about doing a cookbook? And uh, Minerna just laughed, and that, that was the end of it. But the next day, this lady, who was the VIP, rung up Minerna and said, can you send me some recipes? Because I'm going to work to get a book, your book published so that you will be able to make some money out of it and invest in your charity. And that's what she did. She arranged for a book to be published. She used her influence for the book to be published and that book being published released money for them to be able to revamp the, the kitchen and actually to put money into sources, uh, to, to different projects that were around at the time. The VIP, uh, well, it's a name that's on the press a lot at the moment, Meghan Markle. And she used her influence and her ability at that time, no matter what else happens since, but she used her influence and her position to serve people by doing this for them. Isn't that incredible? And that's the, the picture that we see from Jesus. John's closest, um, uh, sorry, John, the closest uh, disciple of Jesus, goes on to tell us a little bit, little bit more. So all this argument is going on about, about who's the greatest. And John says this, during the supper, when the devil had already put into their heart into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Just, just a little thing on that thing. He, Jesus knew that God had given all things into his hands. And you know, when you're secure in who you are, it's, easy to, it's easier to serve other people. Because, and if we understand who we are in God, we are sons of God, joint heirs with the Son, it's easier for us to serve because we know who we are. And what did he do? He rose from supper. 
Amongst the middle of this argument about who's the greatest, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. You know, that was the job that was normally given to the lowest servant in the house. Here was all these people come from this meal and they out there they're walking in the dirt and they've got sandals on and they walk in and so the, the, what happens is that a bowl and a water and a pitcher and a towel is laid out for somebody to be the servant and to wash the feet of the important guests that were seated around the table. And it's interesting to me that none of the disciples went for the towel or the uh, water or the bowl. They were too busy discussing who was the greatest. And Jesus stands up. Everything was ready. Everything was ready for somebody to be the servant. And they didn't see it. They missed it. And Jesus stands up to be the servant. Because why? Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by the yardstick of service. Listen to that again. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by a yardstick of service. It goes on to say in John, it says, When Jesus, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher had washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Isn't that amazing? The greatest of all time had become the lowest of all time and taken on a servant. But his greatest act of servanthood was still to come. He was to be put on the cross. He was to carry our sin. He was to be our substitute and receive the wrath of God for the sins. Isn't that absolutely incredible? He became our substitute. What I know is, and I've learned from reading the, the accounts of these eyewitnesses, is it is the bended knee of surrender which unleashes explosive power in the family of God, not the greatness or position or gift of a leader. We have a choice in what we want to do. We can choose to be the servant. We can choose to pick up the towel. We can choose to pick up the bowl. We can choose to pick up the water. We have got that choice to do. And we, as followers of Jesus, should always be asking, how can I serve you? We should be saying to our kids, how can I serve you we should be saying to our husbands and our wives how can i serve you gentlemen let me speak to you the most important thing job you can do in your life is to champion your wife you have to serve her she's not there to serve you you are there because you love her so much in the same way that jesus loves you are willing to lay down your life and you are there to champion her to let her become everything she can become isn't that a mission in life the kingdom of god is not selfish so our work colleagues our friends sacrificial service is the culture of heaven i don't care what it's like in the world this culture of heaven when the culture of heaven 
is different to the culture of the world. We don't import the culture of the world. It says in Philippians that we are the colony of heaven. We are outposts of heaven in the earth now. And the culture that exists in our church, in our king, God's kingdom, and Jesus' kingdom, is the culture of service. We have to become servants. Secondly, I noticed that Jesus moved the place of sacred worship from a temple into a table or onto a table. Luke 22 again. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, ordinary everyday things. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup. And after he had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took the most simple, everyday, ordinary things that existed at that time and took them in a meal, which was something that they did every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We do that all the time. And he took this and introduced that into the meal so that we understand that the sacred act of worship and intimacy is not locked away in some building, but it is actually every day on a table when we eat with friends and relatives or family. When Jesus died a few uh, days later, in the temple, the, 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 the curtain that was outside the Holy of Holies and separated the temple, it was torn from top to bottom and open. And so no longer had people who followed Jesus have to live their experience of spiritual life vicariously through a priest who went into the holiest of holies that nobody could see. But now worship and intimacy with God was now part of everyday lives. Even a simple act of eating a meal together, his followers could turn their eyes towards the sacred. And so everything changed. Suddenly, every meal brought on a brand new significance. That every time they sat down, every time they got the bread out, and every time they got the wine out, they were remembered about the sacrifice of Jesus. And when we do that, we look back to what God has done for us, how he be Jesus became our sacrifice, Jesus became our substitute, and freed us from our sins so we could have relationship with a holy God. We remember what God has done for us. We remember the present, or we know the present, because we do this and we are in communion with God. We have relationship with God, and we stand before him accepted and loved in that place. And we look to the future because is. Jesus signaled to his disciples that he's not going to drink this again and not eat this again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. When's that happening? 
Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord your God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are you looking forward to that day? I'm looking forward to that. To eternity with God. And that moment when his church, his bride stands before him in absolute beauty. I know we get things wrong and I know things, we, we mess things up. But on that day, we're going to stand before him and we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the, land, uh, the Lamb in a way that we've never done it before. I want to challenge you over the next few days. I, I would challenge you to read John 13 through to uh, 17 to discover again what Jesus taught his disciples. I believe that we need a reintroduction of the table in our houses and, and also in the church. What do I mean by that? The dining room in our house is the least used room. I suspect it's a bit like that for you as well because the TV came along, it went in the corner and so we put trays on our, our knees and we, we eat our meals without talking to each other watching the TV or we've got the phone and doing Facebook or something like that. And busyness and entertainment and convenience has shifted our mealtimes from a living room to a different place and they're no longer communal experiences. And I think we need to put that back into our houses and we sit and we gather around and have the meal and we get the wine out and we get the bread out and we teach our kids that Jesus broke his body, is given for us and his blood was shed and it becomes a central part of everything that we do. And I believe also in church, as, as, as we, we have moved so much of discipleship to information rather than relationship. And we've moved discipleship to a classroom rather than around a table. I know in my life that the catalytic moments or times in my life and the things that I have learned have been learned sitting on a sofa or around a table in conversation with friends and, and relatives and mentors. I look back to the time I spent when I was only 13, 14, when Roger Blackmore, my pastor, came into my life and how I would spend Wednesday nights in his house just chatting about Jesus. And I learned so much more than I learned in any service. And, and I went and, and there were, as a young person, there were people in our town, in our village, that you knew that their house was always open. You could go there at any time. There was always a drink ready. And you, could just, you didn't even have to knock. You just opened the door and you would go in and you would sit and chat about Jesus. And they would help you and see transform and help in your life. When I went to Bible college, I listened to so many lectures. But the things I remember more than anything is sitting in the common room afterwards, discussing and talking. When I moved to Milton Keynes, I found myself in a, in a communal house for some guys. And I can remember we, we would sit till, we'd, of course we did some stupid stuff as well, but we sometimes would sit till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and talk about what Jesus meant to us. We need to move back to the model, the discipleship that Jesus gave us around a table, talking to each other and moving back into our personal lives and our spiritual lives, back to the table where the bread and the wine have such significance. And move away from the TV and move back into the dining room and understand what God has done for us. So, what do we learn from the first eyewitness accounts? We're servants. Leadership equals one who serves. Simple as that. Secondly, 
the bread and the wine, the time of discipleship, the remembrance comes back into our lives and we, we bring it out of the out of the building and we bring it into our homes and into our streets and into our lives. In Jesus' name.